Mark Gregory is here, a retired chief economist of Ernst & Young, EY, and has the pen to show for it. More than a game, saving football from itself is out now on yellow jersey. I haven't looked at the price. I guess twelve ninety nine. Yeah, that's right. And available for all good bookshops and those that don't pay tax. Um, 30 seconds on Amazon. I mean, it's selling your book, but they don't pay tax. You know, um, I think they would argue that uh, they do... They pay the taxes they're meant to pay. So, um, you know, no more than that. Is it not something I'm an expert on, for sure. I will have to speak to a tax lawyer. Um, I love how you say that the office at EY is a cricket and rugby office. So you're kind of going, yeah, I had a quiet weekend. Nothing much happened. But it is very interesting. And this sums up football um, consumerism. You go to the print room to talk, or the, the break room to talk football, or you used to. Yeah, no, I mean, literally, you know, you turn up and uh, rugby is incredibly popular. No one in business in the 80s admitted to being uh, interested in football. You know, certainly just, you know, the game had such a bad image at that point. And then today, you know, my last couple of years at EY, there's a scrabble for tickets, you know, that Champions League final in particular, sort of Liverpool Spurs, it was just um, hilarious how much people were paying for tickets and trying to get flights. It was a crap game. It was the worst game of football I think I've ever seen. It was only within about two minutes, right? And who who, who did the handball? I can't remember. It was Watford's Moussa Sissoko. Oh, yes, that's right. Completely forgot. And in amongst all the Sissoko transfer news, because he's a great player, he was wonderful at Newcastle, and then, as with all players at Spurs, they need 10 scapegoats. They need a scape 11. It's terrible. Yeah. Terrible, that club. Um, but talking about the, the horrible days of the 80s, you saw some horrible days at 2021. Was it that all of these imbeciles were on drugs? And that it wasn't a failure of policing, it was a failure of society to correctly conduct itself on a day of a national period of celebration for the Euro final. It's hard to unpick. You know, the the semi-final was fine, but actually even then it was amazing how many people were outside the ground drinking, you know, uh, just the the sheer volume of waste and and getting into the ground. But the, the Sunday, I think... I think we're complacent about hooliganism. You know, it's it's never quite disappeared. It's just priced out or effectively policed out of, of games in in some ways. But um, you know, there were, when we arrived at the game, there were more people leaving Wembley than going to Wembley because people have been there all day. And mm-hmm. I think that was probably the gap in the policing or the crowd management, if you like, because it was a Sunday and then an eight o'clock in the evening final, people just went to the ground for the whole day. A lot of them without tickets, some of those left, but clearly then some tried to break in and we just got in before we were at the gate at the entrance where people did break in in large numbers and we'd literally just got in before that happened. But my, so I was with my three kids and we had about two and a half seats between us in the ground no more than that just there were so many people cramped in to our space and then the fighting broke out guy near us hit an italian fan and there was no oh that was, was near no you i saw that I saw, or i heard about yeah, it it was, I horrible. Know, yeah. it was horrible and there were no police there and not many stewards and actually the stewards weren't physically able to take on the guys who'd been fighting and, and some fans identified them you know and asked the stewards to kind of move them out and they were unable to do that so I think you know there was probably the security in the ground wasn't 
what was needed for a game of this nature. And like all the games, you know, they've been well, sort of well mannered, if you like, um, up until the final. But as soon as England weren't winning, you know, things can often quickly change, if you like. So, um, uh, and I think. You know, and I, I don't know about the, the, the drugs. I didn't see any evidence of that. But I do think there's a question about football's relationship with alcohol as well. And, you know, we, we're sort of pretty quiet um, on that. But it is um, quite a significant thing, I think, when you see the amount of drinking that went on the day it's a cultural societal thing and it's it's not i mean i'm a middle class jew from watford whose first football match was in front of i think i was one of about five thousand uh, oh no my first football match was at highbury uh the first one i really remember was watford wrexham in the third tier i think ronnie rosenthal probably played i never really enjoyed going to spurs even th- the whole thing there were a couple of games that i enjoyed but Again, crowds, and that's why I'm a football librarian, and why Mark Gregory, you get your football library membership card. Now, oh, I don't know because I usually offer it with a, a journalist on it. Um, which Stoke City legend uh, do you want on your library card? Wow, that's a, a big question. I quite like Tony Pulis there. With or without cap? With cap, obviously. Correct <laughs> is the the correct choice. Um, I think someone said, because he was at Gillingham, and then there's a chap, Jim Naylor, who's yeah. written or drawn a lot, all the old Gillingham managers, and Tony Pulis is pictured, but without a cap, because the picture he used oh. as inspiration is capless. And I went, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Got to put a cap on. That cap is going to be in the football museum, along with Jim White's uh-huh. yellow tie segue. Yeah. Transfer deadline day is footballers' theatre, more comedy than drama. Are you following it today? From Spain? Yeah, I am, you know, hoping we might sneak one or two players in. But, you know, it's not like the um, Pulis era. He did love a deal at the end. Interesting, I was just watching it before uh, we spoke and Mark Hughes was on talking about um, you know, the Rubinho era yeah. and how in that window, basically the owners of City had, he said, feelers out for players all over. Europe, just hoping that one big name would drop, and it, and it did. Yeah. yeah, and then he said, I'm really excited to sign for Chelsea, and that tells you all you need to know about football. I mean, I'm with Gareth Southgate. The, the game, 11 players playing and getting mushed 5-0 by a Bobby Charlton 11. Great. Everything else, and much of it is mentioned in this book, more than a game saving football from itself. Were you depressed writing this book? I would have been. Going back in time was interesting because you, know, you can see how things have got better. But I, I suppose I was more frustrated because it's, um, you know, it's clear English football generates enough money to do to, to kind of have a very um, sort of sustainable, effective, competitive game, and yet you know, there's, no one has been in, in, a, in sufficient control to make that happen. So, so less depressed, more frustrated, but then. You, know, you can see a way forward, and, and I do think you know the, in the Conservative Party manifesto, obviously the fan led review was promised because of what had happened at Bury and Bolton Wanderers, and, and then things went a bit quiet. But Project Big Picture and then the European Super League, I think, you know, were political disasters for the big clubs, and they've really shifted um, the sort of political will towards the, the wider game. So, so I do think. The fan-led review is a, really is, you know, I think I say, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to reshape football to, to uh, some extent uh, in favour of, or at least where fans are properly represented 
and their interests are properly represented at the table. It was fascinating looking at Vincent Company's MBA thesis, and he said that you need a passionate full ground, yeah. which is absolutely right. Yeah. Um, because look at what's happened with Liverpool and Everton in the last 18 months. They've barely won any home games. It's yeah. obvious that, the, and I'm sure if you took the crowd, although Stoke were doing quite well with the crowds, and they kind of, yeah. it, it's a trans, it was a transition period last year. Um, but yes. I didn't hear much fuss because you have the coach's money. You, you're never going to starve. That club, yeah. which by rights should really be in the Premier League now. Something's not quite yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in my lifetime, Stoke's average position is about fourth in the championship. So, you know, um, but obviously they've got more backing now, so you'd hope they'd outperform that. So, yeah, so, so I, you know, but I think they are in that, you know, the, the real dynamic and the real difficult bit in English football is those clubs outside the top handful um, through to kind of, you know, the middle to or so of the championship, as you say, those 20 or 25 clubs, because that's where all the stress, the maximum financial stress hits, because they're trying to get, you know, into the big league, and every time they do and then come back, there's another you know, period of readjustment. So it is very difficult there. And I think if we could smooth that transition, that would be you know, a major step forward. As you can imagine, I have spoken to the great Kieran Maguire, who is yeah. the most vocal? He's always—he's the guy. He's like the Simon Calder of football finance. Simon Calder is yes. always called on for travel, uh, and Kieran is yeah. great. Brighton fan. Brighton are doing brilliantly. I, when I asked him who the nicest, most brilliantly run club was, Brighton is up there. Brentford are up there. Interesting that they're both yeah. gamblers. Accrington yeah. and Wimbledon yeah. are also up there. So, who, in your view, is the club that is best run? For fans, for players, for staff, for community? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, I would say, so interesting, when I um, was doing um, work at EY with, with the Premier League when we were trying to really understand the economic and social impact of football, people in the Premier League's management team would say Stoke City were one of the best-run clubs at that time. You know, and I guess supporters, and they challenged that a bit with, with the kind of transition period. Brighton do look well run to me. You know, I'm I'm not sure about Brentford. I mean, I, I appreciate what they've done in the transfer market, but they don't. You know, they got rid of their academy. Yeah. And I think if every club did that, you know, we'd be in a really sort of difficult position. So, so I think that's um, question. You know, I was very impressed by the Liverpool management when I met them. Um, but uh, you know, a club who I think are, are really well run and and actually an exemplar of what the kind of community football club should be is Port Vale and you know for Stoke fans that's obviously a, a, something to um, worry about and, and Stoke's community operation I write about in the book is really top end. Well, um, the, it comes from the, the top it's yeah her name exactly. is Carol Shanahan at Port Shanahan. Vale yes. yes and you know they own a company that is next to Vale Park yeah. uh, the leading edge IT company. She worked on the Community Foundation at Port Bell then, you know, her and her husband Kevin bought the club and revamped the club, completely reconnected with its supporters, you know, leveraged the link to Robbie Williams. But the Hub Foundation that the club, the company and others, you know, they've given out over three hundred thousand free school meals in, in Stoke. So fantastic work that Marcus Marcus Rashford's done. But actually, you know, the Hub Foundation in its market done an amazing job as well that's the kicker and 
I don't need to go over how brilliant Watford are. The original community club, Luther Blissett yeah. has the freedom of the town. There's a mural of Graham Taylor, a stand named after Graham Taylor. John Barnes will still be mobbed whenever he goes down the high street. Um, yeah. As will Troy Deeney, actually. Um, but every club should be a community club because they're in the community. My $64 million query is how does Manchester United stay a community club when a billion people around the world support them or follow them? I mean, it's amazing, right? Just the whole stats there. I mean, you know, and to be fair, they do do a, a great deal of work in, in their local community. And I've been at um, kind of meetings of, in, in Greater Manchester talking about economic development and, and the club, both clubs are, are represented. But yes, I mean, you know, when you've got that, that base, you're obviously going to be a, a different club, if you like. But nevertheless, despite what people say, you know, there is a big local following. And, um, you know, the club, for example, I, I think when I was chatting with Richard Arnold, um, when we were doing some work around economic development, and I think they employ 1,300 people on match days, you know, locally. And they were trying to create apprenticeships for all of those kids, et cetera. So, so there are different ways clubs can connect. But, you know, I think Manchester United, Everton, are a fantastic community yeah. club. Um, um, as well. Arsenal. Yeah, Tottenham, you know, West Ham, are, again, I did some work with West Ham's Community Foundation, you know, and I mentioned it in the book, but any old irons, this um, scheme there for connecting old people back to the club is just genius, yeah. I think, you know. So Watford, really, have got, uh, Watford have got something like that as well. Um, Richard Arnold, yeah. by the way, I wonder, I, I wrote, uh, when Ronaldo came in, I said he's going to open a Methuselah of champagne because Richard Arnold <laughs> is all about eyeballs. Obviously, he knows that it's about more than eyeballs. It's about on the pitch. But at the end of this year, Ed Woodward, who has been the emotional punch bag of Manchester United fans, uh, steps down. Over his watch, Man U and Liverpool have collaborated on this big picture. Man U have gone in and then gone out of this Super League. He's an accountant, not a football person. Would you actually encourage footballers to do accountancy degrees in the afternoons? I mean, certainly I think a business background, particularly for those who want, you know, want to stay in the game, and, and I think it'd be good to have you know, more pundits who are commercially aware as well, if you like. I think you know, that, um, that would be important. But well, there's Red Nev. Um, Gary Neville runs a hotel and a football club. He clearly gets it, and you know he gave evidence to the select committee where about the sale of Wembley, for example. So mm -hmm. yeah, but I think if more players, particularly as they move through the game, had that expertise, it'd be really valuable. Well, Ajax seem to have um, done brilliantly because they've got yeah. Edwin. Yes, and they had Van Basten before, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. Edwin can speak as a CEO and as an international goalkeeper because that's also the German model right you know that um, you look at the um, sort of ex-players certainly at Bayern Munich they've all become the sort of CEOs um, or you know chairs of the club and and obviously I mean who knows exactly what drives these things but Germany's model is an interesting one and you know the kind of culture of the clubs is somewhat different yes Bayern are a super club whatever but they clearly have a different sort of view on um, fan pricing and um, you know what matters in the ground. It occurs to me that I haven't run through the exact contents of this book. Interestingly, as with uh, a book that I wrote that I'm not here to talk about, there are 11 chapters. Uh, the first one 
takes its title from a talk sport program. What is the point of Stoke City? Uh, then there's yeah. a whole new ball game. Show me the money. The best league in the world? Question mark. I love that. Following David Conn's book, The Beautiful Game. Stick a question mark there, but you have to do the upspeak. We should not be moved. We'll support you ever more. You'll never walk alone. It's coming home. You don't know what you're doing. World in motion. Believe in better. So those are the 11 chapters. And that final chapter is effectively a manifesto based on all this research. David Goldblatt has now pivoted to environmental sustainability. How can football survive if it's so bad for the environment? Interesting. I, I wonder, compared to other industries, how kind of you know, disproportionately bad it actually is. But um, you would think there were things you could do, certainly, you know, regionalising some of the, maybe the um, sort of first and second division, if you wanted to cut travel, um, for example. Well, you know they've done that in the uh, League Cup this year. Yes, yeah. north and south, yes, exactly. And, and saving money as, as, as well, I would imagine. I, I think it is, you know, you probably wouldn't have... Um, a Euros competition spread all over Europe, right? You know, just um, particularly in a pandemic, but that's a separate. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess you can't blame them for that. But you, you'd imagine, I think one of the tensions would probably be the international game, right? I imagine that's a, a carbon-intensive um, activity in many ways. That is something but, that football and FIFA, especially with uh, a lot of money that they've got in the reserves, which they don't talk about. Forest Green are an example. Maybe of you know how far you can actually take things. That is the so. correct answer. I was I, as soon as I asked that question, I went. I hope he mentions Dale Vince at Forest Green, who dresses like the environmental activist that he actually is. <laughs> Michael Crick went to me. Have you met him yet? No, no. <laughs> that's a that's a great picture you conjure up there. I, I recommend Michael Crick talking about this in his Mail Plus. Um, okay. video. It's only about six minutes and um, I've got some Michael Crick books in the football library. There's all kinds of books. Uh, what would you take off the shelf? And bear in mind that I've already given you Stanley Matthews the way it was. Yeah, I mean so, you know, David Conn uh, I love um, all of his books. I mean, I, I think, you know, his Manchester City book, kind of you know, that's him as journalist and as fan. Yeah, he, he, called Richard like, and God. You know, yeah. Yeah, you know, I love inverting the pyramid, just the history of tactics. You know, Jonathan Wilson, I think, is good. Um, I met um, I was at a private equity event when I worked at EY, and I met an American who run a huge, ran a huge pension fund who was a big New York City fan and really keen on football. And I recommended Rude Hollett's book to him, How to Watch Football. Brilliant book. And he loved that. Yeah. You know, he thought that was best advice anyone had ever given him, if you like. But also going back a bit, you know, I liked... Um, all played out and out of time as um, you know, kind of classic books. And I, I was you know, just old enough to read the Glory Game in its first version by Hunter Davis. Oh, wow. What was it like? Can, just on and um, we've had Alex Finn here, and um, yeah. haven't had Pete Davis yet. But I do want to talk to him about his book um, because it's, it's Out of Time slash One Night in Turin. Yeah. Brilliant. The film is great as well. All of those are in the library. The Glory okay. Game is 50 years old next year. I do want to get Hunt wow. in because it is. I'm talking to Steve Perryman at some point as well for the book. But the Spurs of the 70s and the way he's embedded, which only Mike Calvin with Millwall has done since, yeah. is masterful because Hunt is a football fan, a Carlisle fan, so a provincial fan. Okay. But right. gets to the nub of what it is just to work in the industry, i.e. as an yeah. employee. 
as a footballer. Yeah. Hopcraft, the football man, does the same thing. So what was it like if you're a teenager reading about professional men playing football yeah. and they can end up coming, actually going to the Victoria ground and playing Stoke away on a wet Tuesday night? It, I, I suppose it was really shocking how mundane it all was, you know, sort of day-to-day. And the other book... I think is really like that, and you, and you get all the insecurities is left foot forward by Gary Nelson. You know, More people uh, should read it. Every home should have one. I read yeah. it when I was about twelve. Just sensational and so yeah. boring. So many injuries as well. It's like this is a job, right? You know, I mean, and just and also it's a, a job where you're constantly under pressure. I remember saying to Tony Scholes after I'd been to a couple of games when I'd seen him there. You realise, you know, in business kind of, you know, you're always in presentations or you're pitching for this or doing that, but there's always another one coming along. You know, you might, often might have a couple in a day sort of thing. You might win one, lose one. But, you know, for a, in football, you lose, then you have to stew on it, if you like. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you, you don't know what will happen next either, but there are these huge gaps. So it's, a, it's both mundane but incredibly stressful sort yeah. of life, I think. And I recommend Calvin's book, Living on the Volcano, um, where he lists all the things that a football manager has to be. If you're a chief economist, you just have to write a paper every three months or kind of watch what um, the, not the Federal Reserve, our version of it, of the yeah. Federal Reserve, yeah. well, the, the MPC, MPC. You've got lots of d- different things you can kind of, you know, succeed in day to day, if you like. And, you know, I, I think, yes, kind of in football clubs, obviously we do work on the stadium or the academy or, you know, negotiating contracts, but this, this huge peak, Every every week, or even less than a week, sometimes. And uh, if you're in the management side, you've got so little control of it. Whereas, you know, if you're a chief economist or a chief executive, you're doing this stuff. You know, and the big pitches, you'll be doing them. So it's you. Whereas you've had to entrust it to these other people. Yeah, unless there's a pandemic on, where it's all hands to the pump, and the yeah. pandemic looms large over this book more than a game. Saving football from itself. Uh, I know someone who wrote a book called A World Without Work, and it's all about automation and uh, integration of technology. And he said everything that was going to come in in 2030 is actually coming in in 2020. So Uh the pandemic, which has cost 150,000 lives, has pushed things forward. Um, There are several recommendations in your book. What is the absolute most important? You know, that we have a new financial settlement for the game. If we don't change the flow of money, you know, and I, I make the point that um, pre the Premier League, fifty percent of TV revenue went to the champ, what is now the Championship leagues one and two. Today, it's sort of under fifteen percent. So, if, if we want a sustainable game, then we have to have a sustainable financial settlement. And that's just the domestic rights, because if you're competing yeah. in UEFA competitions. That's where you get more yeah. and more money, and that's where you don't even see that. Yes, yeah. exactly. And in I, domestic, I think, you know, and, and it's a double win, right? If you get a European place, you get more money in the Premier League's award. You know how they award the money, but then you get all of the income flow from European TV, from European commercial rights, etc. Going forward, it has to stop. I mean, you've lived through several bubbles that have burst. You yeah. survived black. Were you working as an? Um, but was it IBM during Black Wednesday? So I was at, um, I think, PwC then. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that was a lively day as you were just watching screens and, and things. But I was at, the, you know, at IBM when the tech bubble burst. Yep. So that was also challenging, yes. And obviously 2008, the Eurozone, Brexit and COVID, we've had quite a run in the last sort of decade and a little bit. 
and you're you're now retired. So hopefully you can sit. Do you play much golf now? I'm still playing football, but I think I probably will have to take up golf. I think my knees are at that point where golf will take more of a role. Someone said recently, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but if you go to non-league football... The, around the pitch, it's populated by people who can't get into the golf club. And I think that's the best description of a football fan at a lower level that I've ever heard. Yeah. As you know, you go to Stoke for the sociability as well as the game. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, I think you do get a loyal following, right, in non-league as well. Yeah. Um, or Port Vale. Is there a non-league team in Stoke? So um, I guess when I was growing up, it was always Stafford Rangers uh-huh. were a reasonably successful um, non-league team. Now there's Newcastle Town and, and interestingly Hanley Town, which is you know way down the pyramid. But Paul Dickerson, the, the Stoke player, has taken over as manager and he's recruited a few ex-Stoke players. I think Danny Pugh's playing there. Ricardo Fuller's played a few games, so clearly they have some backing. You know they look as though they're making a push. Mm, I will monitor that. Thank you for that. Um, one of the stats that I'll repeat to everyone, and I love it when I read a stat and go, yep, I'm having that one. Of every pound spent by a football fanatic in their whole life, eight pence is spent on following the football club and then ten more is spent on drink. So like one in every six pence, if you're a proper football fan, is spent pursuing the football club. Did that surprise you when you read that? Uh, it did actually, you know, and um, but you look at a, a number of sources and it gets you to a similar place. And also, you know, it's probably gone up three or four times since um, since the eighties because you know you used to pay for tickets, now you pay for a shirt, you pay for TV subscriptions, etc. Mm-hmm. So yes, it, it is. Yeah, the average household you know, with a with a very committed fan who goes home and away watches on TV, you know, they spend almost as much on football as they do on food and drink. I would believe that. And there are a lot of Watford fans who today are raising a glass to Troy Deeney, who has gone to play for Birmingham. Uh, I guess Birmingham will play Stoke soon, so you'll have to give him a kick. Um, And he'll kick back, probably. Ah, the Joe Allen-Troy Deeney situation. Yeah, comes back, yes. Which renewed itself. Um, I wanted to finish um, so you can get back to... Well, I guess you're having a siesta this afternoon. Yeah, that'll be fine, yeah. you, you say loyalty is a fan's nicotine and you also compare football to a Ponzi scheme in the early chapters. It just makes me annoyed. It makes me so angry that business cannot run football because they spend and they spend. It's the never-never. You have to spread yeah. out the payments and it's no way to run any business and it's so easy to run football as a business. It's all asset management. And so will we see more proper businessmen like Matt Benham, like Tony Bloom, proper businessmen run football clubs, maybe lower down the pyramid especially? I think if you, know, if you had a, a better regulatory framework you know, and clear leadership and, and clearer rules around the finances, then you know, more business people would be interested in it sort of as a profession. You know, because as it is now, you know, it, it's really, you're gambling all the time, not, and I don't just mean gambling with the money, but if you're a, you know, a good business person, you still won't know if you know, the financial deals are, are going to be in place, how decisions will get made. There's no predictability. You know? So if you do want good businessmen and women in the game, you've got to create a proper grown-up business structure and 
you know, and that really is what I'm um, sort of hoping we get towards. Yeah, and we're seeing that. I'm, I follow what Andy Holt says, and in this yeah. football library, there's the, the lounge where you can relax actually has the words good morning and by the way on the walls, yeah. which is his catchphrase. And the amount of moaning, which common sense moaning that Andy Holt does. And he said if football did have a regulator, if it was proper, more people would want to do this. Yes. Um, would you? Would you want to be on a non-exec board of, let's say, Hanley Town? You know, I think I'm quite happy to sort of sit on the edges. So I've done, you know, lots of coaching. Um, I'm sort of on the committee of our local football club. But actually, you know, in the professional game, it's quite nice being on the outside and um, you know, trying to sort of make sure they keep themselves in order. Yes. Um, Jim White's book, You'll Win Nothing With Kids, is yeah. particularly brilliant on that. And you mention it in the further reading at the back of More Than A Game, yeah. Saving Football From Itself. People who want to follow business and football can go to the Off The Pitch newsletter, which you found useful yeah. in compiling the book. You also mentioned that your aspirations for um, Playing football were dashed when you played for your county alongside which former England international and grandfather of a pop star's child? Yes, that's right, Mark Chamberlain. <laughs> Who is it? Yeah, well, I knew, my cousin Gabby knew his son very, very well. Uh, and Alex has just rotten luck with injuries. Rotten luck. Yes, as his dad did, actually. Oh, is that so? Oh, that's yeah. why, yeah, because John Barnes and Luther were, were really well known. But I was, I, I was surprised I yeah. didn't know who Mark Chamberlain was, although I grew up in the 90s. So he played, obviously, in the, you know, that famous game, the John Barnes goal in the American art. You know, he was on the other wing. Mm-hmm. But the, another $64 million question, Mark Gregory, and good luck with the next few years, both personally, professionally and stokically. Can football survive without Tuesday nights in Stoke? You know, that's that's at the core of it, right? I think that bit of anticipation and pain that supporters need, and actually that's really ultimately where the, the appeal for the game comes from, right? It, uh, it is it, all of us who watch it have been in it and feel we're participating, so I would say no. Again, the correct answer. Former chief economist for Ernst & Young, Mark Gregory, uh, retired economist. But you can never retire from reconomicsing, can you? No, that's right. Uh, let us hope there are no more bubbles and um, the results of this fan-led review will come out, we think, in the next few weeks. Uh, but good luck. If I see you at the Vic, good luck to Stoke in the League Cup. I hope your firsts beat our seconds and vice versa. <laughs> or our seconds beat your first. But we've got, a, we've got 150 million quid of Premier League money to focus on. Who wants the Carabao? Yes, that's right. We'll leave it for us.